Welcome to Broadway World, Some Like It Pop Podcast. I am Matt Timonini, Broadway World Senior TV and Film Critic. And as always, I am joined by the brains of our operation, Broadway World TV's Los Angeles Bureau Chief and resident Pittsburghonian, Pittsburghian, Jennifer McHugh. Jen, congratulations on the Penguins winning the Stanley Cup. Thank you very much. The most stressful part was whether it would end before the Tonys aired. So on the West Coast, I had an advantage because the only advantage of a Tony's delay (laughs) is and the game ended at 7.57 and the Tony started at 8. So it was uh, all coming up Jen. Very very nice. I like that. Good uh, Broadway reference as well. A little gypsy. (laughs) All right. You can follow Jen on Twitter at Eponine Q. That's E-P-O-N-I-N-E-Q. And you can follow me at B-W-W Matt. That's B-W-W-M-A-T-T. And you can read both of us across various Broadway world sites. And you can follow Something at Pop on Twitter at S-L-I-P Podcast. Not only can you get all episodes of something that could pop on BroadwayWorld.com, but you can also get new episodes downloaded automatically via iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So if you don't hate us, rate and review the show so that we have something to brag about when our family makes fun of us for watching the Tonys over and over by ourselves. On this episode of Some Like It Pop, we're going to talk about those very 71st annual Tony Awards. We're also going to talk about things that we either are looking forward to catching up on this summer or things that we are going to recommend that other people catch up on. We're also going to talk about the much controversial production of Julius Caesar at the Public Theater's Shakespeare in the Park. But first, Jen, we are going to talk a little bit about a podcast that... You, as soon as I heard about it, I knew you would love it. It is from two people that I have known for years and been fans of and friends of for years. Patrick Hines, who most people know from the Theater People podcast, and Jillian Pensavale, uh, who most podcast listeners know from the Hamilcast. They have joined together for a new podcast, which is so up your alley. I'm annoyed that they didn't ask you to be a part of it. True Crime Obsessed. Yes, couldn't be more perfect for me. It is literally theater people talking about true crime and the documentaries about it. So it's like checks a lot of boxes for me. Obviously, I'm a big fan of Jillian from Hamilcast, and now I'm a big fan of Patrick. I didn't know him before. I did get a chance to interview both of them over the phone and listen to the podcast. It's brand new, but they are very, very enjoyable. They have a great energy. They kind of bring some levity to some very deep issues. And they also talk about, you know, documentaries that are made about these crimes, not the crimes themselves. But they're also really investigative. They go into details. They try and break things down. It's really entertaining. And even if you're not a true crime fan, I think you'll enjoy the energy of the two of them together. Yeah, I am not a true crime person, but I did listen to the first episode so far, and they are just so much fun. They both have such great personalities that even though they're talking about you know, murder and stuff, uh, they somehow make it enjoyable. They do. And I had a great time talking to both of them. Um, I, of course, you know, was on the phone with Jillian, so I had to, you know, geek a little on Hamilton. (laughs) I happened to talk to her the morning after Lynn tweeted them and followed them. So she was on uh, cloud nine. Lynn who? Oh, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Good, good, good. Broadway great. Yeah. Lynn Nottage, (laughs) Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. You know, yeah, Lynn Schultz, my mom's best friend. No, nothing. Okay. Yeah. No. Okay. All right. Well, speaking of Lynn Manuel Miranda and Lynn Nottage, we do want to dive into the 71st annual Tony Awards. Jen, we are recording on Monday night. That is June 12th. Um, we are less than 24 hours from the ending of the Tony Awards. So we're going to run through these things again. As we often say, Jen, neither of us live in New York, but we view the theater season very much through a passionate theater fan perspective and also from a pop culture perspective. So we're going to go through the winners and losers. Kevin Spacey is the host and probably the thing that most people watch the Tonys for, the performances of the musicals. First up, Jen, I don't want to spend too much time, but let's talk about the award winners. For the most part, they were fairly in line with what people predicted Uh, in terms of the acting categories. I think maybe the only two acting categories that were a little bit surprising was the featured actress in a musical, not because Rachel Bay Jones wasn't someone who thought people could win. I just think there were so many women in that category that could have potentially won that anyone who won would have been a little bit of a surprise because there were so many other great candidates. And I do think there was a, a little bit of a consensus that Danny DeVito might win in the Best Featured Actor in a Play category just because he's Danny DeVito. Michael Aronoff, who did win, had won pretty much all of the other awards, but there seemed to be a little bit of a, of a, of a feeling that Danny DeVito could win. Other than that, in terms of the shows and the performances, there really wasn't much surprise. What stood out to you as somebody who, obviously, I work 
you know, much closer to, to the Broadway theater than you do. But as a fan, what surprised you? wasn't so much surprises. It was just um, I enjoy the speeches. Which one was your of, favorite? Honestly, I think Cynthia Nixon was my favorite. Um, I was surprised. I'm not a huge fan of hers, but I thought she was very eloquent. And um, I think I think it's worth noting that with the exception, I think, of the very last award, I didn't see anyone reading off a piece of paper. I mean, these are seasoned theater actors, and all of their speeches were so eloquent and so poignant. Ben Platt stood out to me. Uh, Cynthia Nixon, like I said, Laurie Metcalf. I thought Pasek and Paul were adorable. I mean, they are just everything you want them to be. How do, re- do you think Do you think Pasek and Paul practiced that going back and Please. forth, like doing a stanza and then another stanza going back and forth and was like rap battle acceptance speeches? I, I, I'd like to think that they all practice. They're theater people. That's what they do. Um, but most importantly, I wanted to shout out Rebecca Tashman. Is that how you say your name? It is, yes. She was the um, uh, best director in a play for the show, Indecent, somebody who I did not expect to win, but I could not. If I had to pick who I wanted to win, it would have been her, so I'm so, so glad that she won. I just wanted to thank her for shouting out her stage manager. Stage managers (laughs) never get any love, and they are the most important person backstage, and I love that she not only shouted out hers, but thanked all stage managers. I thought that was great. And then, of course, the ultimate speech of the night was <laughs> the the queen um, who who told the. Uh, I just want to say. I just want to say. I I just I just want to say. Every night I get to play in the sandbox of the Schubert with the greatest group of clowns I've ever encountered: David Hyde Pierce, Gavin Creel, Kate Baldwin. Help me out here, Melanie Melanie Moore, Taylor Trench. Beanie Feldstein, oh my God, I'm losing it. Wait a second, I have teachers just like you do. Oh, and Will Burton, I mustn't forget him. Um, I had teachers just like you do, and way back in the 60s before all this stuff happened. Mrs. Mer- Myrna Ishimoto, Mrs. Betty Blake Rice, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I thank Jill Hatterplate, who keeps me from falling off the ledge at least twice a day. I thank Maeve, I thank Maddie, I thank Oslin Holder, my beloved Oslin, and I... And I just want to say, I just want to say, I just want to say, revival, shut that crap off. I just want to say, I just want to say, I just want to say, I just want to say that revival is an interesting word. It means that something is near death and, and it was brought back to life. Hello, Dolly never really went away. It has been here all along. It is in our DNA. It is in the national, Jerry Herman songs will live forever. Um, It's optimism, it's democracy, it's color, it's love of life, it's hilarity. This is a classic, come and see it. It's absolutely, it's not just me. The whole thing is utterly, this thing has the ability to lift your spirits in these terrible, terrible times. Come and see it. And lastly, I want to dedicate this. I want to salute the people who actually came before me. The brilliant, brilliant, inimitable Carol Channing, who made my life, who was a gift to me. The extraordinary Pearl Bailey and all the hundreds of women that came after me who who lit the way. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. She's the best. There's nothing you could ever say to me to make me think less. I love her. She's fantastic on Twitter. And I've been a fan of hers since I was a little girl. So uh, that was pretty expected. I don't think that that was a surprise to anyone. But uh, she she sure uh, was very bet. And it was everything I wanted her to be. Yeah. You know, we are talking about Bette Midler. She was everything everyone wanted her to be except for performing. I I still think that it's it's a shame that she didn't perform at the Tony Awards. Because it'll probably never happen again. She'll probably never do a Broadway show again, uh, considering it took like literally 50 years in between Broadway musicals. And it's really bad that it seems, for whatever reason, the, the explanation that we're getting seems to be completely out of spite. That they had David Hyde Pierce perform a song just standing at the center of the stage in front of the curtain, rather than doing anything else uh, from Hello, Dolly, which probably would have been better. So other than that, you're right, Bet was fantastic, but I'm still disappointed whether it was her decision or Scott Rudin, the producers. I, I think that was a, 
a big old spiteful slap in the face to the Tony Awards and to the theater fans around the world. I'm going to get to that later when we talk about performances. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so moving from the awards into probably things that are a little bit more in our wheelhouse, Jen, since we haven't seen any of the Broadway shows, how did you think Kevin Spacey did as host? He definitely made the most out of the fact that he was not the first choice for uh, for that position. I thought he was great, and I think that we um, ad nauseum talk about what a thankless job it is. I think he had some hits, and I think he had some misses, but he went for it, like you said. And he can sing. Like, I don't think a lot of people know that, but he, he really can sing and he's a great entertainer. I know that the majority of people were just sitting there and nitpicking all the ways he's not Neil Patrick Harris. And I just feel like he did a really great job and he'll be remembered as one of the not as great hosts, but I think he did a really great job. I have, I don't have any bones to pick about him. I think we saw this a little differently. Uh, I don't think he was terrible. He was exactly what I expected him to be as soon as they announced that he was going to do it. I knew he was going to try to sing. And I think he's a serviceable singer. I don't think he's great. I wouldn't want him leading South Pacific or anything on Broadway, but he's fine-ish. But the other thing that just annoys the poop out of me is I knew we were going to get terrible impressions. Like, seriously, I know he thinks that he's good at impressions. He's not. Could we have gotten a few more dated impression references than Johnny Carson, who's been dead for like 12 years and Bill Clinton like those, that was just trying too hard for me. But I did appreciate the opening number, even though it probably would have been much better if it was shorter because he he would have been able to sustain it. I appreciated that opening number because it had so many inside theater jokes that it wasn't necessarily just something that played to the lowest common denominator. Those were a joke for people who knew the shows of this season. Um, So I appreciated that. And let me ask you, Jen, this is something that's been whispered about for decades in Hollywood and in New York and in London where he lived for a long time. It seemed to me that Kevin Spacey made multiple jokes about his sexuality, which I did not expect at all. I think it's been a long running joke that he refuses to say it one way or another. So I think that that's just all he was commenting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fairly, I mean, I don't want to say it's fairly well known, but it, people who have been around Kevin Spacey, you know, tend to believe that he is gay. And the fact that he made multiple jokes about coming out of the closet first with Whoopi Goldberg, then as um, Norma Desmond, I thought it was interesting because I thought that was something that he would avoid, especially because there were a lot of people in the theater community who were upset that he was chosen to host because he has never publicly acknowledged his sexuality, which I don't necessarily think that anybody has to acknowledge anything, but I'm a straight white guy. So my perspective is a little different on this. So I was surprised that he was so open about that. But overall, Jen, I think that you gave him a slightly higher mark than I did. He's obviously not Neil Patrick Harris, not James Corden, but I thought he was fine. I I don't think he hurt the broadcast at all. I I think he's a great impressionist and uh, I love his Bill Clinton. And I, I was so happy that he walked out as Frank Underwood at the end. And, you know, the Johnny Carson was probably a little dated, but I know there was a select group of people that was very amused by it. So that's true. I just, you know, like I said, I thought he did a great job. Yeah, the Johnny Carson impression probably does play to the traditional theater going audience, the older, you know, middle ageish white people. Um, so I guess it probably did hit a specific mark. Mr. Miranda. It is an honor and a privilege to shake the hand of the man who created Hamilton, the musical that does our nation proud. It's an honor to meet you, sir. Here's the envelope. Thank you, Mr. President. Claire, let's leave them and we'll allow them to finish up with their award show. I want to get the hell out of here before Bette Midler thanks anyone else. Okay, Jane, so that moves into the thing we wanted to talk about most, and you mentioned it earlier, is the performances. Um, Let's run through them real quick. We had that opening number, which we talked about. Then we had the musical performances from Come From Away, Miss Saigon, Falsettos, Dear Evan Hansen, Groundhog Day, David Hyde Pierce singing from Hello, Dolly. Then we inexplicably had a performance by the Rockettes, uh, accompanied by Cynthia Erivo and Leslie Odom Jr. Then we had War Paint, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, Bandstand introduced by former second lady, Dr. Jill Biden. Then we had the uh, Boys to Men Street Corner Harmony uh, in memoriam segment. And then we had the weirdest way to end an awards show with that uh, Bobby Darren number 
with Kevin Spacey and Patti Lapone. So first, Jen, let's let's go from bad news to good news. What numbers were you either underwhelmed with or really annoyed by? I wasn't annoyed by anything. Like I said, the Tonys is my favorite broadcast of the year, and the worst performance on the Tonys is better than most performances on any <laughs> other award show. Fair I point. think the Grammys is god-awful, and I would never sit through it. But if I had my choice, I wish they had done something different from Hello, Dolly. If Bette doesn't want to perform, she doesn't perform fine. Why not do um, We've Got Elegance with the other four characters? You know, there's huge dance numbers in that show. Mm-hmm. There are other choices. And that was just very bizarre. And he looked uncomfortable. It was really odd. Like everyone was smiling and nodding. Like, why is this happening? And I think it did a disservice to David Hyde Pierce, who I'm sure is great in that role. Yeah, actually, um, my boss, Rob Diamond from Broadway World, he was telling us that the number really lands in the show because it comes at the top of act two and he's earned that curmudgeon reputation throughout the entire first act. And so this kind of little bit of levity really is enjoyable in the context of the show, but out of context, when you're just doing that number by itself, it feels weird and uncomfortable. So I think you're absolutely right. Other than that, I didn't really have a problem with any of their other performances. I don't think the Rockettes thing was necessary, but I get it. You're in Radio City. You're in New York. It's fine. Whatever. Moving on. <laughs> That's fair. Um, yeah, I I was not especially taken with a lot of the performances this year. Come From Away does not do anything for me. That Falsettos number didn't do anything for me. Neither did Groundhog Day's number. Um, War Paints didn't do anything for me. So I, I didn't hate them. But as, as I said on, on Broadway radios today on Broadway right after the Tonys, I said, this year I feel like there's a lot of shows that I liked in concept, but from what I've seen of performances and on the cast of them, I didn't necessarily appreciate them in execution. But again, that's without seeing the full production, but I didn't love some of those numbers. But there were a couple of numbers, like four numbers that I really, really enjoyed. So Jen, what was your favorite overall? My favorite is a tie, and I know it's a cop-out, but I'm not. Also, we're going to greatly disagree on Come From Away, as that was one of my top three, and I downloaded the CD at that moment. My tie for first was Dear Evan Hansen and Natasha Pierre and The Great Comet of 1812. I thought both were great choices. I really didn't know what they were going to do for Dear Evan Hansen, but that was a great choice, and it really, uh, really showcased Ben in all his glory, and I thought he just knocked it out of the park. I'm in love with that show, and I love him, and... And then Natasha Pierre, I don't know anything about that. I, I read up all on it today and, and downloaded the music, and it just looks fascinating. And I know that it's it's not even doing it justice because it's not in its own setting. And the people I know who have seen it have commented on the staging and the theater and how interactive it is and how impressive it's so, you know, inclusive. And so I know it didn't even do it justice, but I so enjoyed that number. Yeah, those were two of the ones that I absolutely loved. What's most interesting about Dear Evan Hansen is is that I thought on the first half, Ben was a little, you could tell he wasn't 100% vocally. He had been open and public about the fact that he'd taken about 72 hours of vocal rest leading up to the Tonys because he had a slight vocal injury on Wednesday night during the second performance of the day. So he was not 100%. And I I thought you could tell a little bit in the first half of that number, but when you got to that second part, when he really kind of started to vocally break out, I thought he was just uh, goosebumps and tears and everything. He was fantastic. And I agree with you, Jen. I'm starting to look towards my next trip to New York. And Natasha Pierre and The Great Comet of 1812 was always towards the top of my list of shows I had to see. I think it might have skyrocketed to number one in terms of the new shows from this past season because that was just so much damn fun. I had the opportunity to talk to uh, two of the roving musicians in the show about an, uh, for an article that I did uh, on Broadway World that came out on, on Tony Sunday about actor and musicians. And they just talk about how much work they do in that show, kind of like what you were talking about, about all the interactivity. I talked to one of the accordion players who literally runs up and down the stairs into the mezzanine like four or five times. She runs across the mezzanine multiple times throughout the show. It is just so interactive and so full of energy that I loved that one. I also, I'm, I've got a, a soft spot for Evil Noble Zada from Miss Saigon. Uh, we interviewed her for our Tony Omnibus episode on Broadway Radio, um, and I've been obsessed with her performance since I saw the filmed version of Miss Saigon from the West End. I thought she 
killed it uh, on that number. I thought it was weird to include the intro where she is overwhelmed by the North, you know, Vietnamese army or whatever. But, uh, but I thought she did a great job and I enjoyed bandstand bandstand has not had a whole lot of great publicity, but I think they did themselves a favor with that number. Was it great revolutionary theater? No, but it was enjoyable. I will have to renege on my earlier statement about not being underwhelmed by anything because I completely forgot about Groundhog Day. That's how underwhelmed I was until you mentioned it. Uh, it did nothing for me at all. I think yeah. I was on my phone. Yeah, like it's weird because I want to love Groundhog Day because I love Andy Carl. I love Tim Mention and I love the idea for this. But out of context, the numbers they've done on television have been bordering on atrocious. Like I think that one, the one they did last night was – Goodish. The one they did on the Today Show a few weeks ago was just horrendous. I've listened to the cast album and nothing jumps out to me. So the fact that it had great success, won awards over in London, and then so many people that I know have seen it and loved it, I just have to think that something about the show itself kind of transcends what we've seen from it outside of New York, don't you think? I do. Uh, you're right. It has all the right components, like Tim Minchin, Andy Carl one of the greatest movies of all time, you know, yeah. it has all of the elements, but what is it missing? And I hope that it's just the out of contextness of it. Yeah. And, and for me, it's the same thing with come from away. I've listened to that whole cast album and all of my Broadway world colleagues have gotten mad at me when I've said this in our Slack channel. For me, that album bordered on horrendous. Like it did absolutely nothing for me. And I didn't, I, I didn't appreciate almost anything of that entire album. However, every single person I know who've seen it has loved it. And this is a show that, like, like I mentioned earlier, this is a show that is right in my wheelhouse of things that I normally love. Small, plucky shows that defy the odds are artistically creative and are not the type of things you normally see. But from the performances I've seen on television and the cast album, it just leaves me very cold. And I don't know why I, it, you know, I want to love this show and I didn't. So I'm really, really glad to hear Jen that it did something for you and you, and you enjoyed that number last night. Yeah. I'm going to have to side with your colleagues on this one. That blew me away. I, it was definitely one of my favorites and I downloaded that cast album this morning as well. And I've just been loving it all day. And the other one I downloaded was Natasha Pierre and the great comet of 1812. And it's just the most unique cast album I've ever heard. It's like, yeah, Russian folk music mixed with like a, like a beat. EDM. (laughs) Yeah. It's so bizarre. And I, it's just fascinating and the harmonies and the dissonance and it's a beautiful score. I'm very impressed with that. Well, and Jen, I don't know if you, if you notice this cause you, you know, aren't as, as engulfed in it as I am, but there was a moment when after Josh Groban sang his initial opening thing and the number got really big and all of the musicians and, and roving actors came up on stage, Josh Groban went down into the audience and he hugged a guy in the front row. Do you remember seeing that? Oh yeah. And then the guy came up on stage and started playing piano. Do you know who that is? Is that Dave Malloy? That is Dave Malloy, who wrote the book, music, and the lyrics for the show, and originated the role of Pierre off-Broadway. He has actually since made his Broadway debut in the role, subbing in for Josh Groban when he had other concert obligations since he extended his run in the show. Um, He had a couple things that he had to take care of, so Dave Malloy has taken over that role. Okarite Anadawan from Hamilton, of course, who was also part of that uh, In Memoriam tribute, he is taking over as Pierre uh, in July, I believe. He's just doing a short run, like a month and a half, two months. Um, and then a lot of people are are thinking that Dave Malloy will take over that role full time after Oak leaves. So, Jen, I don't know about when your next trip to New York is, but I would imagine you would love to see Oak in that show. Oh, I would love it. It would be completely different interpretation. And he would be, I, I mean, this, the entire show intrigues me with everything that we've been talking about. And you throw a Hamilton alum in there, forget it. <laughs> but like, I love, I love Groban. Don't get me wrong. Cause mm-hmm. uh, he's been getting nothing but good reviews and people adore him in New York. But I think Oak would bring something completely different to it. So that's interesting. And now I understand a little bit of war and peace. So that's cool. <laughs> Very little bit. Only 70 pages of War and Peace. But yeah, and what's so cool about that show is is that it's legitimately colorblind. The role of Natasha, as I'm sure you've either knew or have learned, was originated by Philippa Sue. Philippa Sue did it in the two off-Broadway productions at Ars Nova and then in the Meatpacking District under the tent. She went to do Hamilton. That's when they brought in Danae Benton to do the production out in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the American Repertory Theater. She continued with it to Broadway. They are very open to just switching whoever 
you know, fits the role, they're going to put him in no matter what they look like. Um, and I'm really excited to see after this cast leaves, whenever they leave. Obviously, we know Groban's leaving in July. But to kind of see who they bring in, because it's so cool to kind of see different people from very different perspectives take on roles. And so I'm, I'm very excited to see what they do with this show next. So, Jen, anything else that, that jumped out at you, whether it's the presenters? I, there's one or two things that I want to mention, but I'm going to give you the chance to uh, – uh, anything else that presenters or facts or anything from the Tony Awards that jumped out at you? Yeah, four things. One, <laughs> okay. Jill Biden was one of the most unexpected, beautiful moments of the evening. I, I loved that she got a standing ovation and then she introduced um, Bandstand. Second, um, and I – I want to, because he's my favorite person in the world, I want to believe that this was intentional, that Lynn stayed out of sight until the very last minute. And I want to believe, knowing him as a person, which I pretend I do, is that he did that to give everyone else their night. And he knew full well that if he was in the audience, all the camera shots would be at him and there would be a lot of attention on him and jokes at his expense. And I love that he was just backstage or absent until he, it was his time. He did his award and he was gone. Because he's the greatest human being in the world. Three, Jane Greenwood winning her first Tony at 83 years old after 21 nominations hmm. for costume design is an amazing thing. I hate that some of the awards are off screen. I get it. I understand we're there for the performances. But that's just an amazing – I, again, want to bring up all these ladies in their 70s and 80s and 60s out there belting, performing, and the Tony community just loving them mm-hmm. and celebrating them, and I love it. And the last thing I'm going to mention is my pitch for next year's hosts, John Mulaney and Nick, Nick Kroll. Yes, absolutely. That was one of the things I wanted to talk about. I think we maybe on one of one of our maybe I used it as a as a show and tell earlier, but they hosted like the Independent Spirit Awards, and they just did this incredible 15 minute I- opening that was so perfect. And they did it obviously it was much shorter at the Tonys last night, but that was so much fun when. They were having so much trouble finding Tony's host. I thought they would have been perfect. They were some of the people that I suggested on today on Broadway. Those guys are hilarious. And I think they've had such a great success with Oh Hello. I would not be surprised if we see them in other types of things on Broadway in the future, whether or not it's, again, as um, George St. Geeglin and Gil Faison, or if they are doing something completely different, because they really were embraced by the Broadway community, much like Josh Groban has been. Obviously, it's in a much different ways comparing apples to oranges between what Groban is doing and what uh, Melania and Crowley are doing, but they were so great, and I absolutely loved it, and I'm so excited that Oh Hello on Broadway is coming to Netflix this summer, because that should be an awesome thing to watch over and over again. So you got um, Melania and Kroll. That was one of the things. Pasek and Paul are now halfway to an EGOT. They have an OT. I'm assuming they're going to get a Grammy or two for La La Land and or Dear Evan Hansen. They're up for a couple different things for potential stuff for an Emmy. So whether it's this year or not, I originally predicted that they would have an EGOT by the end of this uh, or by the time the awards for 2018 come around. I don't know that that's going to happen. The E might be a little more difficult, but they're going to get it sooner rather than later. Fellow Ohio native and Ohio State diehard fan John Legend is now just an Oscar away from an EGOT because he was a producer on Jitney. Um, so he got the Tony for that. And then Anna Kendrick introducing Ben Platt, her co-star from Pitch Perfect 1 and 2. I love that. Anytime Anna Kendrick is on anything, you know I love it. She's talked about the fact that it's very unlikely that she'll want to come back and do a Broadway musical again because she doesn't think that her voice can stand up to the eight shows a week because she doesn't have that type of voice. But I'd love to see her come to a Broadway play. She's a fantastic actress, Academy Award nominee as an actor, and she's a Tony nominee from from High Society when she was like 12. So she needs to be on Broadway soon. She does like 18 movies a year, but when she gets a break, she needs to be on Broadway again very soon. Her Instagram post was really cute today, congratulating Ben on his Tony. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. I'll have to watch it because who ever it seems like everybody loves Ben Platt. Like there's no possible way not to love Ben Platt. So obviously Anna having done two movies with him, I'm sure, you know, they are really good friends. She introduced him as her friend, but like he just seems like the most genuinely good person like there were at first i i was i thought that his 
press tour was a little contrived. He seemed a little too polished and a little too, oh, shucks, had a little Taylor Swift in him. But the more you see him do it, the more it just seems so believable and so genuine that uh, I'm very happy that he is going to be representing Broadway for years and years to come. I know he's going to do movies. I know he's going to do a lot of other things. But it just seems like he's the type of guy who will return to Broadway on a regular basis. And he'll be one of those people who is a Broadway guy first. And with the talent that he has, I, I, I'm very excited. Okay, Jen, moving from theater to television, those are two of our great loves. Um, summer TV, as we talked about last year, our first summer of doing something like a pop, and now this year, summer TV used to be a wasteland where it was just reruns and crap. Now, the summer is when you get some great TV. It's not like the height, as we've talked about before, the best TV usually debuts in January. But you get some great stuff over the summer as well. Um, so we're going to go through some things that are going to be airing this summer. Some things that we either are going to recommend for you to binge or things that we're going to binge. And also some things that we're going to catch up. So we're going to go back and forth and just kind of talk about some things. Uh, Jen, why don't you go first? Because I know there are some things that um, you like that I don't that are probably going to be on your list. Well, currently, obviously, I am in heaven rewatching and watching the new season of Twin Peaks. It's been 26 years in the making. I love David Lynch. I love seeing these characters again. It's also a little bittersweet because there are a few actors in it who have passed since they filmed the show. So it's, it's like a, almost like a final eulogy, but it's been really enjoyable. It's bizarre. (laughs) It is inexplicable, but I trust him. It's going somewhere. Um, The other thing I'm really loving is Carmichael show, which I got turned on to a few years ago and they tackle some tough subjects on that show. And the most recent episode was David Allen Greer plays Gerard Carmichael's dad and his um, mom, Gerard's grandmother asked them to help her die. And they had to decide um, whether or not they were going to assist in her suicide so she could die at peace before she gave into dementia is a very, very serious topic. They managed to bring very, um, you know, silly humor into it, but they're really good at tackling serious subjects and bringing humor to it because, you know, even in the most serious of times, you have to find laughter. Sorry. Or, or drag race <laughs> down the streets of Los Angeles. But I also uh, tweeted that I, I love the episode, and, and David Allen Greer retweeted me, so oh. uh, he, he knows I'm a fan. <laughs> um, <laughs> Two-time Tony nominee, by the way. He's, he's delightful and he's so good. Like he's underrated as an actor. And the other ones I'm getting into are Orange is the New Plaque just came out on Friday. Uh, Animal Kingdom, which you think is disgusting, but I love because it it's all naked surfer boys. And the other one is Sutton Foster's Younger comes back next week. So I'm excited to pick up on that again. Awesome. Um, my shows, none overlapping, not a surprise. Um, but the shows that I am excited about watching this summer are the second season of Winona Earp, the first season I mentioned last year. The second season started last Friday. The first episode of season two was a little bit wonky. Jen, they did the thing at the end of season one that we always talk about causes some problems with TV shows. They got into the whole conspiracy theory thing way too early. iZombie did it at the end of season two and really kind of embraced it in season three. They got into the kind of the bigger conspiracy theory, the shadow government organizations, in the second half of season one, but what I really did enjoy about episode one of season two is that they kind of had a really smart way to get themselves out of that, to kind of get back to what made the show so much enjoyable in the first part of season one. Season one as a whole was fantastic, and it's always awesome to see kick-ass women, you know, being the leads of action sci-fi shows, because we don't see it very often. Um, but I really enjoyed that. I'm so excited to see what they do with season two. Also started last week, I have not watched 
the first episode. It's the final season of Orphan Black. Jen, we've talked about the great Tatiana Meslani uh, many, many times on this show, so we won't belabor that. But I'm, I, it's a, it's the same kind of bittersweet feeling that I had watching the season finale of Leftovers, uh, the the finale of Rectify this year. These shows that I love so much, and I've been so inspired by the creativity of their storytelling. I'm sorry to see them go, but. You know, we've had a good run out of this one. So You Think You Can Dance, as we are recording, it just aired its first episode of its newest season tonight. I love So You Think You Can Dance. It's been less than great the last few seasons, but in its early incarnation, the first seven, eight seasons, it was, I think, the most artistically satisfying thing on television, the most artistically inspiring thing on television. And I'm hoping that they can get back to that after having a couple weird season concepts last year was kids the year before was like street versus stage now they're going back to the tried and true original formula they have brought back mary murphy as a judge they've also added vanessa hudgens who since powerless got canceled she's got nothing better to do i guess so sure why not uh and then two other things one is preacher season two returns one of my complaints about season one of preacher was that it didn't really line up a whole lot either in character or plot with the comic books but at the end of season one, it does seem to be setting up for something very similar to what we saw in the original comic book. So I'm excited to see what that happens. And then, Jen, something that I think that you might like is a new Netflix comedy drama called Glow. That stands for Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, which is based on this real-life 1980s wrestling promotion. It stars Allison Brie, Betty Gilpin, Mark Marin, and others. I'm really, really excited to see this. I grew up loving wrestling, um, and so I'm, I've heard great things about this Netflix show. So I'm, I'm looking forward to see what this looks like when it debuts later this summer. Oh, yeah, that does look good. I remember Glow. I used to watch it when I was younger because I'm way older. But um, I have been looking forward to that one, too. All right. Awesome. So those are things that are going to be on your televisions this summer or streaming services or whatever they may be. So, Jen, those are things that are actually airing this summer. What are some things that you are looking forward to binging, maybe that you either haven't caught up on or haven't really gotten into that you want to get into this summer? Well, I need to catch up on The Handmaid's Tale because I fell behind and I figured I would just binge it, which, you know, sounds like a really fun way to spend a summer weekend. I want to watch Casual on Hulu. I've heard good things about that. I've heard of these three shows, Wrecked, Playing House, and People of Earth, that sound really good, and I've never had a chance to check them out. So I always give them the three-episode try, see if I like them. The other two I got really into on the Sci-Fi Network were The Expanse and The Magicians. Total sci-fi nerdery, mm-hmm. and um, if you like that kind of BSG kind of thing, The Magicians is like Harry Potter on crack, and The Expanse is like <laughs> the next generation Battlestar Galactica. And um, both of us watched Legion, which is Noah Hawley's yes. um, sci-fi show, and I loved it. I mean, we talked about it a little bit. It's so visually stunning, mm-hmm. and I, for me, Jemaine Clement steals the series, but uh, it, it's a, it's an interesting watch. I'm not condoning illegal substances, but if you happen to be high, it's very interesting. I've heard from a friend. So Legion and American Gods are good if you are partaking in, I'm sure, medicinal marijuana is what you're saying. Yes. Well, I live in California, so it's all right. good. <laughs> it's, it's all legal. Yes. You talked about the guy from Flight of the Concords who you loved on Legion. Rachel Keller, for me, was, I could, I, I, became obsessed with Rachel Keller. She is amazing. And she was so good on season two of Fargo to see her in this role on Legion, which is just a a very subtle role in a show. That's just so bonkers. I was just enthralled by her. So I loved that whole show as weird as it was. So very much with you um, on there. Dan Stevens, who it took me a, Mm -hmm. a bit to realize who he was and it's Matthew Crawley from Downton Abbey and, um, Beauty and the Beast, and mm-hmm. it took me a second because he looks very different. He looks skinny and and just not British. <laughs> so I I just yeah. really enjoyed it. I was just saying it has like Aubrey Plaza is doing did some amazing work in that first season. She was fantastic. The greatest, literally the greatest clown in the world, Bill Irwin, plays a very kind of not clownish role, um, and of course Gene Smart. Gene Smart's awesome. So, yeah, great cast. I, I'm very much in the bag for Legion. 
the last two that I will plug that I'm going to partake in are Brockmire, which is a Hank Azaria baseball show. Mm-hmm. I just started and I really enjoyed it. And it takes so place in a, in a town in, in uh, Pennsylvania that I'm actually very familiar with. And the other one is I'm Dying Up Here, which is Showtime's new series about stand-up comedy in the 70s. I believe it's produced by Jim Carrey. So I'm gonna start check- I'm going to start checking that out. Very good. That's a great list. Very good list. Okay, so the shows that I want to catch up on, I need to finish Handmaid's Tale. Um, I need to finish Brockmire. Actually, I got two episodes left of that. It's very funny. Very perverse, but very funny. I need to catch up on Kimmy Schmidt, Angie Tribeca, season three of Fargo, seasons two and three of Bloodline, this last season of Americans, the last couple episodes of American Gods. I need to see the last season of Bates Motel. I need to watch season two of The Path. And I'm debating whether I want to watch or if I want to buy the rest of the episodes of Horace and Pete. We talked about the premiere of the first two episodes, I think, last year, Jen, and we both loved it. But the whole paying for episodes thing, you know, I'm not super down with that because I pay for so much other TV. I don't know that I want to pay for individual episodes, but um, I'm going to think about that one. But shows that I want to get into that I've never watched. The first one is Queen Sugar. It is on O-N, O-W-N or O-N, or I don't know how to, it's Oprah's network. Uh, and it is executive produced by Ava DuVernay. And I've said before on Twitter or maybe even on here that if you don't follow Ava DuVernay on social media, whether it's Instagram or Twitter or whatever else she has, she is the most uplifting person in the world. She loves her job and loves the people she does it with. And Queen Sugar is the show that doesn't get a whole lot of play because it's on the own network, but I've only heard great things about it. So the first season is on Hulu. So I want to watch that. And then season two is starting now, or it might've started recently. Um, So I'm very, very excited uh, to get into that one. And because of how much I loved Handmaid's Tale, obviously, you know, everybody loves Elizabeth Moss. I never got into season one of Top of the Lake and there's a season two, I believe, coming. So I need to watch Top of the Lake. I also want to check out Dear White People on Netflix. That's something I'm really looking forward to. And then I want to watch a show called Sweet Vicious. It was canceled after one season by MTV, but it's a show that centers around um, two secret vigilantes who are two female college students that were the, the targets of sexual assault. And they're kind of they're superheroes on their ca- on their can- uh, on their campus, and it got great reviews, and people were so annoyed um, that it got canceled. Um, there might be a new life for it somewhere, but I, I this is something that is probably right up my alley from the dark comedy and superhero kind of genre. So I'm, I'm looking forward to to watching that one. I want to watch Big Little Lies just because at some point when we start talking about Emmys, that's going to be a bunch of them. So I want to watch that. And then some other things I'm on the fence about watching just because I'm not sure if I'll like them. The Night Manager, Catastrophe, Sneaky Pete, I Love Dick, and uh, The Detour and The Missing. Those are things that come highly recommended that I haven't gotten into um, that I might try to stream this summer. Any recommendations on those that you think I should or shouldn't watch, Jen? Definitely catastrophe. Um, it is an awkward comedy, which I know you don't always enjoy, but the writing is very good. And it's probably like the realest inter- like presentation of marriage I've ever seen on TV. Hmm. I think uh, Rob Delaney is just, he's just something else. And the way this last season ended was just so real and like uh, raw. I, I did not see it coming. It was very, very impressive. I don't know what it is, but like, I hate awkward comedies when they're American, but I seem to like them when they're British. Like, I loved Fleabag. Um, so I'm hoping that this kind of hits some of the same spots of Fleabag because I've only heard great things about Catastrophe. The other one I would definitely recommend is Top of the Lake. I I loved it. It's so beautiful. My God, why I don't move to New Zealand. Um, <laughs> but it's a great story. It's a really interesting mystery that unfolds. I did watch the first episode of I Love Dick, and I didn't love it. Like, I didn't even make it through one episode, which surprises me. It feels like it's right up my alley. And I loved The Detour, but I don't know if you will. (laughs) Okay. I'll try it. I mean, look, it's the summer. Tony's are over. My days are a little easier now, so I can watch things while I work a little bit better uh, over the summer than I can during the spring when Broadway is just driving me nuts and, and making every single second um, fraught and, and, and full of anxiety. So I'm going to try to watch some of these, get caught up on stuff because this is peak TV. Jen, we, you and I talk about, go back and forth. Like, have you watched this? No, I don't have time. There is so much good stuff out there. I, I don't know if it's, I feel like it's kind of starting to slow down, 
but it's going to have to slow down a lot to get to a point where I can keep up on a regular basis. Yeah. And you would even commented like, because I finished the Americans and I finished Fargo and I finished a bunch of series in one weekend and you even asked like, do you sleep? And I, I'm like, no, I have to forego <laughs> sleep at sometimes just to finish keep Kimmy Schmidt yeah, and Master of None and Bloodline and all that stuff. I just caught up on everything. Yeah. It's tough. I mean, these are totally these hashtag are first real, world problems. real problems. Yeah. We're, we have rough <laughs> but, lives. Well, but here's the thing, Jen, I work from home. I, so I'm literally sitting at the same desk I'm at right now for like nine to 10 hours a day. And then it's tough for me to feel like I want to sit and watch something afterwards that requires me to like get invested because like I've been sitting and staring at screens all day working. So if I can kind of multitask something that I, I'm a guy, I suck at multitasking, but if I'm able to watch some stuff a little bit while I'm working, that makes it feel a little bit easier. And so I don't feel so bad about just watching screens literally 24 seven. So, okay. At least you, you look at screens all day, but at least you have to drive to work. I do. So I, I'm up to date on podcasts and audiobooks, but I have yeah. to set aside specific times for TV unless I want to get arrested. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Jen, that's something I, I do want to put a pin in for maybe a future episode. Um, Audible is part of Amazon. I've got Amazon Prime. So I feel like I, I might want to start trying to do some audiobooks. So start thinking about some things that you would recommend that you've read all the books you've recommended to me I've enjoyed so I feel like I would at least you know as long as they aren't too much of the teen angst YA genre which I know is something that you pretty much you know stick to exclusively but if you have any suggestions maybe that'll be a segment we talk about later this summer because I I want to get into some audiobooks at least uh, uh at least a couple before things get crazy again in the fall I do love audible it's my best friend and uh, believe it or not I kind of know my audience and wouldn't actually recommend YA yeah. to you. But for Thank the you. record, I recommended one YA book to you yes. and you left. <laughs> I did. Absolutely. Ready Player One. And I know that's why, you know, for all of the crap we give each other, Jen, like I feel like we generally, when we make a recommendation, we genuinely want the other person to enjoy it because we get so much enjoyment out of so many different styles of things. Like I feel like if we make a suggestion, I'm not going to suggest something to you that I know you're going to hate. And I don't feel like you've ever done that to me either, unless we say it up front. So I do appreciate that. You are a very good recommender. Well, people do come to me because we talk about so much TV and, and Broadway and, and music and, and movies. You know, when people ask me for a recommendation, it's because I take into consideration who they are, what they like. You know, I'm not going to recommend Wonder Woman to my mom <laughs> because she won't like it. She doesn't like superhero movies. I'm not going to recommend a stupid action movie to my friends who watch the Tonys. And, you know, it's just about knowing your audience and listening to what people like. And I always ask a few questions like, what kind of shows do you like? And, you know, when people ask for your recommendation, you should take that as pride and then, you know, be true to it. Because even though I don't like you very much, I want you Thanks. to enjoy something. I'm not trying to torture you. So I can torture right. you in so many other better ways. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. And people wonder, we say things, you say, I don't say them. I, I'm always complimentary of you. You say mean things like that to me all the time. And people wonder, like, why you do a podcast together? You're on the opposite sides of the country. You have no obligation. But I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. And we've never met. We've never met. And we've never met. Never met. I've, I do podcasts with multiple people that I've never met. It's a very weird <laughs> thing. The internet is a great and good thing. Now, Jen, let's go into something that, again, brings us back to the New York theater community in some place that I think a lot of times you and I both wish we were, but it gets cold there, and I don't know that I want to go back to the cold. But currently, this is actually something that while the Tonys were going on, I was writing breaking news articles for Broadway World because two major sponsors, First Delta Airlines and then Bank of America, pulled their sponsorship of New York's public theater, literally and truly one of the greatest theatrical institutions, not only in New York City, but in the world, one of the most influential arts organizations in the history of the world, because in their new Shakespeare in the Park production of Julius Caesar, directed by artistic director Oscar Eustace, they very overtly and not subtly at all make the case that in their production, Julius Caesar is Donald Trump. 
Jen, I have a feeling that you and I are going to agree on a number of things, but also disagree on a number of things. But before we get into this on this topic, I want to say that I think this is one of the most complex issues because I think it's very possible to understand most, not all, but many of the different differing perspectives on this. And I feel very conflicted on it. Just for some backstory, even before the first public performances came on, I said on Today on Broadway that from what I'd been told about this production, it made me very uncomfortable and it and it frustrated me. I wanted to reserve judgment until performances started happening. And the more I started to hear about it, I continued to feel that way. I started to understand a little bit more as to what was going on, but it just makes me a little bit uncomfortable. The assassination scene in Julius Caesar, someone videotaped it. It got picked up by Fox News and Breitbart. Everybody on the right is starting to condemn this production. And I can't say that I blame them out of context if they're watching the assassination scene. I felt very uncomfortable anytime Ted Nugent's talked about assassinating either President Obama or Hillary Clinton. So I understand the impulse to be turned off by that. However, Jen, a lot of people are saying, if you look at the context of Julius Caesar, this is not condoning violence against a tyrannical leader, which I think Oscar Eustace was very much saying that Trump is a tyrant. But it's actually saying that if you allow yourself to be overcome by so much anger that it leads to violence, that it actually undermines and ruins the republic or the organization that you think you're trying to protect by resorting to violence. So I understand both sides. But Jen, I feel like it was very naive at best disingenuous to not think that the message would get lost in the message delivery. Does that make any sense? You you're a you have a theater major. I'm sure you have taken many classes on the the ins and outs of Shakespeare. I, I guess I'll just turn it over to you. I said I've said my piece. What do you think? I agree with everything you're saying. I understand the message getting lost, but the message of Julius Caesar is that this doesn't work. <laughs> like you right, think absolutely. this isn't the solution. And the culture right now is so reactive. Someone does something controversial. They want someone's head immediately. You know, if, if, if Kathy Griffin holds up Trump's head, she needs to be fired. Her career's over. When yeah. Bill Maher says the N word, he needs to be fired. When Bill, you like, it just doesn't stop. It's, there's no making mistakes anymore. There's no condemning choices, but letting art go on. And it's just becoming so extreme that it's just setting these precedents that we can't take back. So there was a lot of art, quote unquote, done when Obama was in office from effigies to Ted Nugent to plays even done, even Julius Caesar with an Obama yeah. as the character. I've seen Julius Caesar many times. <laughs> Yeah, Julius Caesar was done at the Guthrie Theater, one of the most prestigious theaters in the country. It was in Minnesota um, in 2012 with a light-skinned African-American playing Obama. Um, I don't think it was as overtly Obama as this is overtly Trump, but the actor who played Caesar in that said, yeah, I was supposed to, I'm a, I'm a light-skinned black guy. I'm supposed to be, of course I'm supposed to be Obama. I've seen productions where, you know, Caesar was Hitler. I've seen it, it's it's a political drama written in the Renaissance that has carried through, you know, centuries. So I don't think it's that tone deaf for them to say, here is a modern version of that. It's easy for me to say it because I'm very anti-Trump. So, but I lived through it with Obama for eight years, him being crucified literally, not literally, figuratively. But now that it's turned against you know the right all of a sudden it's not i don't know I, i'm just tired of the overreaction the immediate reaction for someone's head every time someone does something like this yeah no i'm totally with you and but and i think that's actually the reason it upsets me so much because there are very few people in the theatrical community that i respect more than oscar eustace he's a guy who is probably the greatest dramaturg in the world, he has brought helped bring so much theater to the public consciousness that probably otherwise wouldn't have gotten produced because it is so different. Maybe you might have heard of a little show called Hamilton or Fun Home that the creators of both of those shows have stressed that those shows would not have happened or at least wouldn't have happened in the revelatory way that they did without the influence of Oscar Eustace. So I respect almost nobody in theater more than him. But it just seems to me like Jen ironically, this was not planned. It goes back to the same kind of idea talking about 
how you make recommendations. You have to understand your audience. And when you are creating art, you have to understand that there are two sides to everything. You have to understand that, yes, there's the artistic obligation to what you are trying to do, what story you are trying to tell. And I completely applaud Oscar Eustace saying to a predominantly progressive liberal audience in New York City, this hatred you have for the president, while it might be completely justified if you allow it to turn you into angry vengeful people and it resorts to violence in either a literal violent sense or a metaphorical violent sense that undermines the, the strength of our republic and our democracy totally appreciate that but then you also have to understand the audience and the culture and the environment that you're telling that story in and i just have to feel like because it was so overtly trump i feel like the message is getting lost and i can't imagine someone as brilliant as oscar eustace couldn't have predicted that. No, I think you're right. I think it's very complicated and it is hard to see from both sides because I hate the other side so much. Um, but I think it's doing what it should be doing. It is, um, I don't, I know. I mean, I can't comment on Delta and bank of America. I mean, that's corporate America. Of course they're going right. to, that's just ridiculous, yeah. but it's, it's art doing what it's supposed to be doing. Well, and, and that's where I, that's where I agree in principle, but I think I disagree in this situation because I completely agree with you. And, I, you know, I think we've talked about enough stuff on this show that that we're on the same page here, that art is supposed to provoke discussion and often provoke discussion between people who see the world in different ways. I personally think that by making it so overtly about Donald Trump, that it subverted the potential discussion that they could have had if they had done this production more subtly referencing Donald Trump, I think they could have been much more effective in generating that discussion. And I think that's what frustrates me the most and disappoints me the most is because because of the cultural point that we're at right now and the political climate that we're in, if they had found a way to do something similar but not make it so cartoonishly Trump – up to having his wife speak with an Eastern European accent and have him have leering looks at his daughter. Like, it's just, it bordered on caricature from what, again, we haven't seen this, but I've seen the pictures and I've read a lot of the reviews. It, it, I just feel like they missed the opportunity to genuinely start a discussion because it was so over the top in generating people's anger. So, you know, it's complex. It's complicated. It really is tough to know right or wrong. We're beyond the point of no return with this. Oscar used to said before opening night on Monday when we're, when we're recording that this is what they wanted. This is, they wanted people to understand this point. I just can't help but feel like it could have been done in a different way. I don't, I, I feel like maybe that was their intent. I feel like they were just ready to lean in maybe. and say, I, I mean, and I think, I think that's just the culture we're in where there's, I mean, subtext is a, is a thing of the past. <laughs> so um, I, I think that this was their intent anyway. Just like, here it is. Say what you will. Could be. You could be right. Like I said, Oscar Eustace is brilliant. The public theater generally doesn't make obvious mistakes. So you're, you know, the more I think about it, you're probably right. This is probably what they intended. I don't know that I agree with it, but I have to respect their attempts to generate some sort of discussion in this fractured, contentious world that we live in. Amen. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turned with their bones, so let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it was so, it was a grievous fault. And grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here on the leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honorable man. So are they all, all honorable men. Come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. He was my friend, faithful and just to me. But Brutus says he was ambitious. And Brutus is an honorable man. He hath brought many captives home to Rome whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this and Caesar seem ambitious? When did the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept? Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious. And Brutus is an honorable man. You all did see that on the Lupercal, I thrice presented him a kingly crown which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and sure he is an honorable man. All right, Jen, let's move on to show and tell. 
Uh, we do this at the end of every episode. Jen and I will auditorily show you something and tell you why it's important. Jen, um, I've got, I'm going to go first because mine are super dorky and super underwhelming. I have two, and they overlap. I saw an article um, today, actually, from the New York Times that has generated maps that show the amount of shadows and light in New York City on the island of Manhattan depending on what season it is and depending on what time of day it is. They have every block. They show you where the shadows are, where you have light, where you have dark, how long you have light each day. It is so utterly dorky, but I love it. Like it tells you, you know, when the buildings were built, how much, you know, how high the building is uh, and then how much shadow it casts. I think that's super fascinating. I want to get this blown up and printed and put it on my wall. It's really, really dorky, but I love it nonetheless. The other thing that is a little more interesting, this New York Times piece reminded me of a Vox piece. I, I It's a video. Uh, I read the corresponding article and then watched the video back in December, and it explains why a flat map can never actually be accurate and why there are different types of maps. They, they show it by cutting open a, an inflatable globe. And then they, they show you that it's impossible to get everything correct on a flat surface. So while there are some people, including Cleveland Cavalier guard Kyrie Irving, who actually believe that the Earth is flat, the way they show this globe being cut down really makes you look at maps in a completely different way. And they get into different types of map projections, the Mercator projection versus all these other things. It's super interesting. I love globes and maps. That's alive a lot in my office here, a lot of different types of globes. So I'm super nerdy about maps and globes, but these were fascinating. So if you want something to kind of look at, it kind of gives you a a non-pop culture perspective. I will put those links in the show notes and check those out. Jen, I take it you're not a big map or globe fan? Well, this is very disappointing because I am obsessed with maps. Yes! Um, I, uh, I, I could sit and stare at a map for hours and just be fascinated. I love geography. I love learning where things are. I love learning the relation between, you know, the sizes of different places. And, and I've always been fascinated with the flat versus round thing, especially in relation to, um, Greenland, how it's just yes. never, Greenland and Africa are never being able to be represented about how huge they are. So, Correct. um, yeah, I, I hate that I have that in common with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's actually one of the things they talk about in this video from Vox, where they are so disproportionately represented on maps um, because of where they fall uh, when you make it flat. So definitely recommend watching this. It is super, super cool. All right, Jen, I have a feeling that whatever you have is actually cooler than what I have, but who knows? Not Maybe really. Maybe dorky too. Okay. But but yours did remind me of a West Wing episode that I loved when CJ met with the people who decided to turn the map upside down. Yes. It made me laugh so hard. And then I looked into those maps and I don't know. I, ugh, you're gross. Um, <laughs> so I'm just going to continue on our Tony's theme because, as you know, we've been raving about Dear Evan Hansen and Ben Platt and what a wonderful human being he is. So I just wanted to show and tell something that made me super happy before the Tonys. And that was his performance on the Colbert late show. He performed um, for forever, which in the show, I believe serves as his eulogy for his friend that died. And it kind of also doubles as his like very um, biographical at, at a glimpse into what he's going through. And uh, Stephen Colbert had seen the show and he was very impressed by it. And he performed this live and it brought, the audience to their feet and Colbert had tears and it's just a beautiful performance. And um, I've watched it many, many times. I think he's a, he's just a genuinely wonderful performer and I'm so happy he won the Tony. So it's late show with Stephen Colbert, Ben Platt singing for forever from Dear Evan Hansen. And there he goes racing toward the tallest tree from far across the yellow field. I hear him calling, follow me. So high, one foot after the other, one branch, then to another. I climb higher and higher, I climb till the entire sun shines on in my face. Yeah, that's, uh, it's a great performance. And what's so interesting about this is so many times when you see 
especially when they're doing solo stuff, but Broadway performers doing a song on a talk show, they kind of do the cast album version where it's more about the song and they don't really do as much acting as they do on stage. I have not seen Ben Platt do a single performance on either the Tonys or a talk show where he did not give it 100% Dear Evan Hansen Broadway level acting. And I think that is super evident in this Colbert performance because at any moment it looks like he's either going to burst into tears or throw up of nervousness. And that is so obviously in character for what's going on that it is a really impressive acting feat to see him do completely out of context without the benefit of having been a part of the show leading up to it. So totally agree. I couldn't love it anymore. He does. I mean, and this is a very emotional song, clearly, um, but he is 100% in it and you can just feel it and it'll give you chills. Yep. All right, thanks for listening to this episode of Broadway World, Something Like a Pop Podcast. You can find all of our episodes on broadwayworld.com, and you can get new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. So make sure to subscribe, download, and share the gift that is Some Like It Pop. Also, do our egos a favor and follow the show on Twitter at SLIP Podcast, and go over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and rate and review us, please. And thank you, Jen. We wrapped up season one of Making a Musical. Real quick, anything you want to say about the experience of chronicling Invisible uh, for all of the people who are listening out there? I just really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I, I told you right from the start that I loved the show, and then I got to know the Davids, and they have become genuine friends now. And just to get to hear their story and how they got from when I first met them to now and where they're going in the future, it was a really interesting um, journey for them and for me. And I'm so glad that we got to be a part of it. And I thought it was really, I mean, I hope everyone enjoyed it because I certainly did. <laughs> That's really, we're doing this podcast for us, really, you know, so as long as we enjoyed it, oh well. Um, We will be back after this episode with our much-delayed list of Palooza talking about movies that still make us laugh even after a dozen viewings. That will come out after this one, then we'll be back kind of on a more regular schedule now that the Tony season is over. All right, thank you so much for listening, and until next time, we'll see you around the Broadway world. And you can follow something like a pop on iTunes. Remember which we talked about. Wait for me here in the east. Um, um, I had something brilliant to say, but I forgot. <laughs> Take a minute.